evening to you. I know it's kind of muffled, isn't it? It's very good to see so many of you in here and out in the courtyard and uh, all of you at home. Uh, good evening. We turn to uh, Luke's gospel tonight, Luke chapter 3. It's Sunday night. We go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up in uh, Luke chapter 3. As we come to chapter 3, there is a, uh, a gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3, and the gap is a period of about 18 years, and we move from uh, Jesus as a, a probably 12 years old or so as he was uh, uh, discussing the Scriptures with the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem when he had been left behind uh, by his parents, and they discovered him there. And uh, now here we begin the uh, ministry of John the Baptist, and uh, Jesus, we know, began his public ministry at about the age of 30. The Scriptures tell us that plainly. Uh, you remember John was uh, conceived uh, just a few months prior in Elizabeth uh, to the conception of Jesus, so they're within a year or so of one another. And uh, so here he is now at about the age, uh, age 30 as he uh, heads into this. Um, the, uh, he begins by saying, uh, Luke does as he writes the gospel. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, uh, his brother Philip tetrarch of uh, Iturea, and the region of uh, 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 Traconitus, and uh, there's a little a bit of a dinosaur thing was going on in my mind for, um, and uh, Licinius, uh, tetrarch of Abilene. Now, Abilene, I know, it's right there in Texas. So, uh, and uh, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. That's quite an introduction, isn't it, to um, heading into the ministry of John the Baptist. He gives us several layers of individuals by which to uh, date when John's uh, ministry began. And uh, there's a reason for that. There wasn't uh, quite a universal uh, means or recognized means by which uh, calendars around the world were kind of tied to one uh, main calendar, and so dating was oftentimes uh, given for when a king would begin or a king would die or an earthquake would occur or whatever, and that people could look in their own calendars that they were operating under in the ancient world and discover what that date was. You see these several names that he mentions here. Uh, Tiberius, is the, uh, he is the Caesar over the Roman Empire at that time. And he begins to move right on through down into where uh, a time, this happened at a time in which the Jews had two uh, high priests. And uh, as he describes them, Annas and Caiaphas, one was recognized by the people, the other was appointed by uh, Rome. And the idea is that you take all of these four or five things and you line them all up, and uh, together they give you a precise uh, date for the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And remember Luke, he's a physician and he's detail-oriented and it's very important for him uh, for, uh, on his part. He wants to give us the clearest record that he can of the life and the ministry of Jesus. I think another reason that he may be so particular 
and specific in dating the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry is to realize that there had been a 400-year silence uh, between the end of Malachi's uh, ministry in the Old Testament and then the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry where he rises up and now begins to speak for God and calling people to turn uh, back to him. Now, 400 years, that's a long time, isn't it? I don't, off the top of my head, I can't do the math on how long the United States has existed, but that, the United States has existed for quite a length of time, and then you add however many years would be added to that. It's a long time for God to kind of go quiet uh, uh, in terms of prophetic ministry, uh, to the Jews and also to uh, the Gentile world. And he's intending to break that silence in a massive way related to the coming of Messiah, the coming of his son. And John the Baptist is the forerunners. We'll see in a moment to uh, all of that. And so the silence is broken. It's a huge event in, in uh, uh, the history of uh, the, the Bible, and so here he wants to make sure that we have uh, the date uh, 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 clear in our minds. And so he tells us as we continue in verse 2 that uh, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, uh, in the wilderness, and he went out, uh, went into all the region around the Jordan. And this uh, area here that's being described is known uh, today as the Judean wilderness. Uh, it is uh, a short distance away from the city of Jerusalem, and it stretches all the way down to where the, uh, the Jordan River then feeds the, uh, the Dead Sea in the region of Jericho. And John the Baptist's ministry was centered probably in the area of, of Jericho. Uh, Luke doesn't really tell us that much, as much as the other Gospels do, about uh, the unique characteristics of John. He was a pretty rough-and-tumble guy. And uh, uh, camel skin uh, garments that he wore, he ate locusts and honey and, and uh, grew up out in the Judean wilderness and uh, quite a guy in terms of what's painted uh, there. And I think one of the reasons that the, um, the uniqueness, an absolute um, polar opposite to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and God wasn't going to add his wit. He would, God hadn't been adding his witness to anything the Sadducees and the Pharisees were saying for a long time. John the Baptist shows up just as he is, and boom, there's the witness of the Spirit on uh, what it is that he's saying and what it is that he's doing. And I think that John the Baptist is intended and ought to give all of us a tremendous uh, hope in the, in the sense of, of our desire to be used by God and called by God to make a difference uh, in the world. And uh, here he is in a, a very unusual. I'm not advocating that uh, a Christian become intentionally uh, unusual in the face of the culture in terms of uh, what you wear or what you eat or these kind of things. Christians that uh, make a point of making themselves bizarre in order to communicate that they're a Christian to the culture as opposed to just simply developing uh, the nature of Jesus in their life, Jesus' character, 
they just, they just scare everybody. Nobody's attracted to Christ at all uh, with them. But the realization that if he calls any of us from uh, any kind of uh, rough and tumble background, all that matters is that he's called us and that he will anoint us in that calling and for us to speak for God. And there is no, it's one of the things that I have loved about Calvary Chapel through all of the years. There are lots of sections of the body of Christ that you never get to become a pastor. You never get to uh, speak for God or enter into uh, these kind of, whatever kind of, uh, you know, even administrative realms within a particular denomination without some kind of a degree or something like, like that. And hey, a degree is wonderful if God's got that uh, for you. Um, but it isn't required. And I think as long as we become a Christian and, and we have a calling and we are lifelong learners, then we're going to do uh, just fine. And an encouragement never to put yourself out of, hey, maybe God has called me uh, to speak for him in this way, but he would never use me. I'm in the trades or I'm in sales or whatever it might be. And it's not true. Now, that isn't the only picture, what uh, John ate and what he was on the exterior that's given to us. He was the son of two very godly parents. And, uh, and so he was very deep in the Word. He was in the lineage on both his mother's side and his father's side, uh, in, in uh, the, the priestly lineage. And so he was someone who knew the Scriptures very, very well. But you can learn the scriptures very, very well and never more able to do it uh, today than maybe than, than having to go to school to do it with so much that's available in terms of, of media. But he wasn't a spiritual lightweight at all. It isn't unlikely that his parents, you remember as we saw previously, they were elderly uh, when this miracle of a boy, as Gabriel told Zachariah, that would uh, happen, and they had this baby uh, late in life, it's very possible that they probably died when John the Baptist was maybe 20 years old or so, and he spends about um, the next 12 years, 10 or 12 years, preparing for the ministry that God had called him to, he doesn't go to the temple. He, he uh, uh, says no to that. He doesn't go to Jerusalem for his preparation for it. He goes out into the wilderness to prepare for it in, in the isolation of the Judean uh, wilderness. And I, I would contend at least to, to plant a seed uh, for thought that uh, the importance of isolation with God and certainly... Uh, in terms of a prophetic ministry or being a prophet. I'm not talking about a pastor or a Bible teacher that God adds a word, a, 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 adds a, a prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge to what they're saying, and so somebody feels like, wow, he's talking about me right now. Uh, we want that to happen, and we want there to be a prophetic element. Uh, anyone who teaches the Word of God wants that to be where people go, that came from God, whether it's the whole sermon or a line or two within the sermon. It's what we pray for. But here we're talking about John, and John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And how desperately, in my opinion, uh, we need the office of, of the prophet in operation in the body of Christ. We need the voice of 
uh, the prophet in the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about how that title has been kind of sullied by all kinds of goofy people that have declared themselves to be prophets. And in everybody's mind, even Christians, it means you just become, you know, kind of slightly crazy and do all of these nonsensical uh, things. I'm not talking uh, and calling yourself a prophet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when uh, a, a man or a woman, a prophetess, comes on the scene, begins to speak for God, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to what they're saying, and everybody knows this is God speaking to us uh, right now. And we desperately need the operation of that office. It's an office in the body of Christ yet today. It didn't die in the Old Testament. And uh, we desperately need that kind of a, of a, uh, a voice. But to be a prophetic voice, whether it is in Bible teaching and desiring that to be a part of a Bible, a person's Bible studies, or to be a pure prophet, it requires time with God. And it requires a lot of time uh, with God. It requires intimacy with God in order to hear what is His message, how does He want it to be uh, said, And so that when God begins to use a a prophet, and I think a prophet is probably one, uh, when when he or she is is operating in their gift and God is uh, manifesting his power and his wisdom through that, that must be one of the most difficult offices in, in the body of Christ to keep your head screwed on straight. Because God is using you so powerfully uh, people are hearing God. I mean, it's uh, just as we're going to see here, multitudes rushing to hear what John has to say. And if you're only marginally connected with God, you're going you're gonna to get all messed up or you're beginning to try and get a relationship with God or intimacy with God or know what it means to hear God's voice in the middle of all of that. Oh, it's not, not the way to go. And so the, uh, I don't think it's any mistake that there was a period of isolation and being alone with God, a long period, whatever that might be for any of our lives in terms of of John uh, the Baptist. And I think that one of the reasons that I mention it is I think that um, we have to be aware of this within our culture. And I speak to everyone in the room that is my age, but I speak especially to those of you who are younger, how desperately we need this voice from your a generation as well, and, uh, and our entire culture uh, fights against this kind of isolation with God, this kind of uh, long periods caught, found uh, seeking God, praying to, uh, to God, drawing close to uh, God. And if I want, if you believe this is something God is calling you to, and you desire that related uh, to your life, realize how important that isolation and separation to God will be for that to happen. For me personally, I do have a computer, and I do like the internet. Um, and I like it for uh, sermon preparation. I also like news a lot. So uh, it's a quick way to get the headlines without listening to uh, an hour-long uh, TV uh, broadcast or whatever, or uh, 
find the website that tells the news the way I want them to, and uh, just like you. So I, I, I like that, and, um, but I don't have a Facebook page. And, and nothing wrong with you having a Facebook page. That's great. And, I, and I'm, I'm not on Instagram. I don't receive anybody's uh, tweets. Um, I don't send out any tweets. And it isn't because I'm morally superior uh, in order to do that. And I'm not trying to lay a trip on anybody for having those things. They can be very much sanctified and used uh, by the Lord. But I have found that I don't need any more potential addictions or distractions in my life to slow down and get quiet enough, a quiet heart, week in and week out, to hear His voice, to then speak for Him. And I think that uh, it's, it's good to look at the degree uh, to which we are connected and on. Do you think the human brain or the human nervous system was ever meant to know as much as we know every single day and process it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But to realize, I think that uh, God wants to use me in this way. Uh, look carefully at these things that keep your heart agitated, keep, uh, keep you from, from finding that solitary time uh, with the Lord. And so we see beyond this kind of rough and tumble e- exterior, there were some uh, uh, wonderful things to learn about his life and his priorities uh, a- as well. And so he went forth, we're told, uh, as we continue in verse 3, aren't we flying tonight? Um, And he he was preaching a baptism of repentance uh, for the remission uh, of uh, of sins. And so he, um, that was his message. And, uh, and, he, uh, uh, and the message that he delivered, and then he kind of sealed anybody that believed his message, a call to repentance, he would then uh, water baptize. Again, uh, John the Baptist is not uh, called John the Baptist because he's a part of the Southern Baptist Convention or the Baptist denomination. Uh, we might call him more accurately John the Baptizer. He is named after this particular aspect uh, of his ministry, and, uh, and so he was preaching this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And so he called on people to uh, repent of their sins, and uh, he called on them to uh, have, uh, and that repentance means to have a change of mind that produces a change in direction uh, in, in life, not merely to confess sins, but to repent uh, of them. And then he water baptized those who heeded his call to repent. And this water baptism is called uh, a baptism of repentance here for the remission of sins. uh, This baptism that he was engaged in doesn't represent the same thing that our water baptism uh, does. Our water baptism, uh, that a Christian uh, uh, obeys the Lord in being water baptized, it is something that we do subsequent to being saved. It is something that is an outward physical representation 
manifestation of a spiritual reality that has happened in our lives. And we go down in the water, it represents that we were once dead in our sins and uh, no hope of raising ourselves up out of that condition. And then when the minister uh, brings us up out of the water, it represents that, uh, that it was the uh, God himself who raised us up out of that spiritually dead condition, no longer to live the life that we once lived, but now to live life in the power, resurrection power uh, of the Holy Spirit. And so this uh, this uh, baptism here uh, is a physical and, and a public demonstration of a person's commitment uh, to turn from their sins and now live the rest of their lives with an expectation for the coming of the Messiah. That's what John was uh, declaring uh, to people. The Apostle Paul, uh, he uh, described it, the symbolism of John's baptism when uh, he ran into some Christians in the city of Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 19. And he said, Paul then said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to those that they, uh, that they should believe on him, that is Jesus, who would come after him, that is John, uh, that is uh, on Christ uh, Jesus. And then as a kind of a demonstration, more than a demonstration, but as an evidence of the validity of the, the ministry of John the Baptist. I mean, he didn't just show up and say, hey, I'm John the Baptist and uh, believe what I say. Uh, his ministry as a forerunner to Jesus Christ is one who was sent ahead uh, to prepare the nation spiritually for the coming of Messiah. Uh, it has its foundation in the Old Testament. And he quotes from Isaiah here, as it is written in the book uh, of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough way smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. And so this was his ministry in the ancient world. Anytime a king would move, uh, uh, visit another, uh, uh, a distant section of the kingdom, they would improve the roads. Uh, and uh, in order for his coming to be a smooth one. And so this was something that was done physically. Uh, Isaiah uses the same imagery to describe a forerunner who would come before the Christ, who would then prepare the hearts, uh, the rough, uh, you know, messed up uh, peaks and valley hearts spiritually of the Jewish people uh, uh, to prepare them, those hearts spiritually for the coming uh, of, of Messiah. John somehow realizes at this point when he begins his public ministry, somehow he knows, it's not revealed in the scriptures, he knows that Jesus is soon to reveal himself uh, to, the, to the nation as their promised uh, Messiah. Uh, in, uh, under the, 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 uh, the system of Judaism, as it is described in the law uh, of Moses, uh, uh, the priests began their ministry at the temple at the age of 30, and then they continued through the age of 50, and then they retired out. Uh, so, pretty nice gig. Uh, and uh, taken care of after that. Life expectancies, of course, were, were different than 
And, and so what happened among Jewish culture is that 30 became the age that was recognized as the age in which uh, a man was now old enough to be fit for uh, leadership within the nation. And so Jesus did, in fact, begin at 30. John the Baptist knew that this was uh, right around the corner, as, as I said, in some way. And then he said to the multitudes that came out to be uh, baptized by him. And before we get to this uh, seeker-sensitive message of his, um, I do want you to notice that, that uh, multitudes came out to hear him. So being somewhere in the area of the Judean wilderness, maybe down by Jericho, he is uh, within uh, uh, easy walking distance from Jerusalem and from many other parts of Israel at that time. So he's in a central place for people to come. And uh, we, we know from, the numbers are huge as it's spoken about. It doesn't speak of just multitude. It's multitudes plural. Uh, we know that the crowds from Jerusalem became so great to come out and hear uh, John preach his message that it got the attention of the Jewish religious establishment and the Pharisees and the Sadducees then came out uh, to listen to what John was saying. They were threatened by what, what, he was, uh, what he was doing, and, uh, uh, and, and so uh, because they wanted to hear, how is this guy, this guy's message, who is this, where he's resonating so well uh, uh, and, and powerfully with the people. The, the, the sermon is given to us here. He begins it with a brood of vipers who warned you to flee uh, from the wrath to come. Now, that, that's an opening line to a sermon, isn't it? There's a brood of vipers, he calls them. Now, in fairness, in, in terms of comparing Scripture with Scripture here, before you say, man, I like this guy's ministry, that's an introduction uh, to any street evangelism or a sermon. The, we know from the other Gospels that this comment was principally directed at the Jewish religious leaders. And the viper, of course, is a snake, and it is a deadly snake. And uh, he wasn't just saying, okay, what can I do to, you know, uh, get him upset here. Uh, the, spiritually speaking, they were a danger to everyone they came into contact with, uh, a spiritual danger to coming to know God and, and beginning a relationship with them. And he, and he pegs them uh, 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 with that uh, uh, immediately. And uh, who warned you from, to flee from uh, the wrath uh, that is to come. And so uh, he warns, uh, uh, speaks to them related to this. Now, it is important that we're going to see John possesses a refreshing clarity here um, in his message. And uh, one of the challenges that happens, I think the longer a person ministers the word, whether prophetically or in teaching as a pastor, is you become skilled. Uh, you become experienced. And it's very easy to become a wordsmith. It is very easy to take passages from the Bible and how to teach them in a way that people could look at them and say, yeah, he was faithful to the passage, uh, but you're not really being faithful to deliver the full force 
uh, of the passage. As the old saying uh, goes about uh, sermons that, that we all want to be careful of, and, and the gospel as it's kind of been uh, messed up in how it's represented in the world, that if it was a poison, it couldn't kill anyone, and if it was a medicine, it couldn't help anyone. And it's very easy to drift into that safe place in our teaching ministries. Now, it is also important to understand, before anybody misunderstands me, is that he is not talking about, uh, his ministry is not one in which he stands before a congregation uh, for long years. Uh, These are people that are in an apostate condition spiritually, both the religious leaders and by and large the people of of Jerusalem. And so he is is dealing very forcefully and strongly to a specific situation. And so in a setting like this or a church like this and uh, uh, teaching the Word week in and week out for years, uh, the fact that people come is an indication of a motivation to hear uh, God, a love for God. And so you, you, don't, uh, you don't use this as an ex- as a excuse to, to uh, hammer people. But for that audience, it was uh, very, very uh, uh, necessary. And, 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 and John here, as he, he speaks to them in this way, he anticipates uh, their immediate reaction to what he's preaching to them. And the reaction that he anticipates from the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people as a whole is that they would be offended by this language. The, you know, we talked about it a few times through the years, but uh, everybody walked on eggshells around the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I mean, nobody said anything bad to them. Nobody ever crossed them. They were so powerful, they could crush you. And they would. Look what they did to Jesus. And so you, they, uh, there was this kind of uh, thing where people just, whether they felt respect for him or not, they were treated with uh, kid gloves. And so they were not used to anyone speaking to them in this way, much less uh, doing it publicly while other people were watching. And he anticipated that the protest would be is, you've got the wrong audience. You're talking to Jews here. That, the, the, the audience for that sermon is Gentiles. Uh, we are sons of Abraham. This doesn't apply to us. We're okay with God by virtue of being sons uh, of Abraham, our spiritual uh, heritage. And he anticipates that that's what uh, they will hide behind. And uh, he goes on to declare in verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And And basically he's saying that Abraham had his own relationship with God. He was a man who, while he was not perfect, he was repentant when he was wrong. Uh, 
And so Abraham had his own relationship with God and you need to get your own relationship with God and not try to have a relationship with God through Abraham. And certainly don't hide uh, your wickedness and your corruption and hide behind Abraham as, as an excuse for doing it and assuming you'll be right before God. And that's essentially what he's, he's telling them there. Of course, uh, uh, years ago now, uh, you, you could, would talk with an American and they ask him if they were a Christian and they'd say, yes, I'm a Christian. I was raised all of my life in church. I had Christian parents or grandparents or this kind of thing. And it's the same deal, uh, that I'm okay with God uh, by virtue of these other means. Of course, this is all slipping away in our current uh, environment uh, in the United States of America, and it will continue to do so where nobody will, in, will identify themselves as a Christian on the basis of their parents or their anything because the cost of identifying as a Christian will be too great. And so there's a great refining that is happening that is, is healthy. But the important thing still, and it's still important to this day, for everyone to realize that we must have our own relationship with God. And it's possible to sit in churches for long uh, years, depending on what the church is, and never be born again. You know, there's the old joke that, um, about the fact that uh, being in church doesn't make us a Christian any more than uh, being in the garage makes us a car or whatever, at McDonald's makes us a hamburger. And there's truth uh, uh, to that. And that's what he's calling them, them to. Don't hide behind uh, other people or patriarchs or traditions uh, and uh, you, you need to get right with your, uh, on your own. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Uh, speaking of Judaism as it was uh, currently uh, in its apostate condition under the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In other words, God has already got the ax out and he's already chopping away the roots. Uh, and, in other words, Sadducees, Pharisees, um, your time is limited. Uh, God is going to bring you as, uh, as the, the great, uh, as you put yourself forward as a great representation of the God of the Bible. Uh, your days are limited in that realm. Uh, Messiah is, is coming. And therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, I don't care what your position is, high priest, uh, grand poobah, whatever it might be, uh, it, it, the issue is fruit, not what you say. And therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and uh, thrown into the fire, speaking of uh, the judgment that would follow a, a failure uh, to, uh, um, to repent. And so this is uh, the John, this is his, the environment of his ministry, this is the message of his ministry, and of course all of it is completely uh, counterintuitive to think that uh, someone like that in that environment, it's hot out of the Judean wilderness. And, uh, and then a message like that would draw multitudes, counterintuitive to think that multitudes would come out uh, to hear him. But they did. They did. Because truth is self-evident. And when people uh, hear the truth, they know it's the truth. 
And here you have the people, much like in our day, where they know in terms of Judaism, where they are as a nation, where the nation was spiritually, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. We're going, we're moving in the wrong direction. And they couldn't quite put their finger on either what it was or how to fix it. So how did God deal with it? He sent a prophet. And the moment they heard that prophet, they said, that's it, right there, that's it. And they listened. And you know, we are, I I look at things for where we are today in terms of the trajectory of things in the world. I I realize that uh, what we see today in terms of of the chaos on our streets, uh, which is revolution within a nation, and Jesus spoke of that as one of the birth pangs uh, leading up to his, uh, the rapture of the church and ultimately his return, uh, talks about uh, disease, and also we see birth pangs that are, are occurring. And the thing about birth pangs, as Jesus talks about it in uh, Matthew chapter 24, is those birth pangs, they, uh, they start to get closer and closer to one another, and they get stronger and stronger. So for me as a Christian, I'm prepared for the messiness of this world uh, to get messier. Because Jesus said, the birth pangs, it'll get, they'll get stronger, and they will come uh, even closer. And we even see in our day, you can hardly put one fire out, so to speak, and the next fire is on the world. That's the way that it, uh, that it is. I also, as I, as I try to process the world around me and all of this, uh, we're very much immersed and what I would call the book of the whole cycle of the book of Judges, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And we see the moral, spiritual, we see the chaos of all of it uh, around us all of the time. Everybody can't do what's right in their own eyes and, be, and have a nation or a state or anybody be productive and move forward and ha- have any, any stability uh, at all. And in that book of Judges, there were always a cycle where uh, they would, uh, uh, God would send a judge, they would turn to God with all of their heart and, uh, and then begin to enjoy the blessings of walking with God once again. And then they'd get fat and sassy spiritually again and turn away from God and then they'd become apostate then life would become so miserable for them again they'd finally look up to God and uh, and ask him to deliver them uh, uh, from the bondage that they had put themselves in not just individually but as a nation as a people and then God would send another judge another deliverer uh, to do that and one of the problems is if we're in that kind of a cycle in the United States, and uh, is that it can take a while for people uh, to to get sick of. Uh, where their decision-making and their new morality and their new definitions of right and wrong, uh, the, the consequences of them as they're starting uh, to heap upon them. So that, that can take some time. But as Christians, the confidence of knowing it will happen. Uh, there is either revival coming or rapture of the church, but it, it, one of those two things is going to have to happen. And so I'm content to endeavor to be faithful to what God has called me to do. I cannot wait for, uh, the, uh, I can't produce within a culture 
the thing where finally people's eyes are opened up in a, enough of a critical mass that they realize, I've believed a lie. This is ridiculous. We've been sold a lie. Let's go back to God. But I can be in my place for when that happens. But we already sense that happening within the culture. We already sense the, uh, uh, the fact that uh, when, uh, for instance, in the United States, people are polled. It's up in uh, huge numbers where something is wrong. Uh, they're afraid of the future. The foundation isn't good. And these things, as bad as they are to try and live through the chaos of our age, it is hearts being prepared for a prophetic voice being added to God's message once again and people coming uh, to know him or the, just the rapture and then literally all hell breaks loose in the, in the form of, of, of uh, demonic uh, mess and then God pouring his judgment out uh, upon, uh, upon the world. And so uh, here we see uh, the, but this, the, that sense that people uh, have and, and, uh, and so don't give up hope and look and say, oh, it's just gonna, there'll never be a turn. They'll never. All revivals that God does is when he steps in supernaturally into when things are an absolute uh, uh, mess. Don't be uh, discouraged. We just wanna be found in our place when, when, uh, when uh, that happens because things as they are cannot go on indefinitely. I don't say they can't go on a hundred years, but I do know they cannot go on uh, indefinitely. And so he warned them of the the, uh, coming judgment. Every fruitless tree is going to be uh, headed for the fire. And uh, he knew that, uh, John did, that their initial reaction would be endeavor to protect themselves from, uh, from the message. And so he, he speaks very, very forcibly uh, to them. And just this beautiful, straight-up guy, straight-up brother, and uh, meant what he said. No politics, no wordsmith, uh, no polish. Uh, he just delivered what God had to say in an unmistakable fashion and then let God do whatever he wanted uh, to do uh, with that. And so he wasn't the kind of guy that uh, began his sermons with uh, two jokes or a heartwarming story about kitties in order to prepare people to be receptive to the Word. Now, if you do that, that's great. If that's, if that's who you are, I'm, I don't have any problem with that. I happen to enjoy that as a listener when it's who the person is, but not if it's, if it's mechanical or something like that. And I, I just want to speak to those of you who are of, of more of the ilk of a John the Baptist in ministry and, uh, and in, in looking at things than maybe some other models. That there's nothing wrong with that. Just declare the Word. Just teach the Word. Just minister the Word. And uh, the Word is always relevant. The Word is always powerful. It will always have its uh, needed effect. It won't return uh, uh, void. And again, we, it, not to yell at people or anything like that, uh, but you don't have to feel guilty about not being a comedian or something like that in your public ministry or all these other models that we're given sometimes that, that may fit some people, but they may not uh, fit you. And here is John. He delivers the message that God had given to him.
And I, and I, I have to remind myself, in, in, as is needed, that uh, in, in teaching the Word of God, God didn't call me to be a censor. He did not call me to be an editor for Him, but to just simply deliver uh, the Word uh, of, uh, of God. I remember uh, years ago hearing Pastor Don McClure quote, quote one of his mentors. One of his mentors was uh, Alan Redpath. And, uh, and, and uh, a rough paraphrase of, of what Alan Redpath said was that very early, in every, uh, uh, early on, every minister must decide whether they'll be a prophet or a promoter. And it's true. And to be faithful to declare God's Word and then allow Him to make of it what He chooses to, or if I feel compelled to build something or make something uh, independent of that, then I'm going to become a promoter, going to become an entertainment or a car- entertainer, carnival barker, whatever kind of a thing in order to, a means of a building a, a church. And, uh, and it's always a... Uh, uh, the wrong decision. There's another quote that I've always liked. I I heard it, uh, actually I read it many, 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 many years ago, and it was uh, concerning a man uh, by the name of uh, Robert Wilson, and he was uh, a a very highly regarded Old Testament scholar at uh, Princeton Seminary at the turn of, of the last century. And uh, he would hear every once in a while uh, that one of his students was, who had graduated was coming back to Princeton to maybe teach a Bible study or to teach a, a devotion or something like that. And he would always slip into the back of Miller Chapel there and he would listen to them only one time. And, uh, and here's what, what he said about it. He said, when my boys come back, I come to see whether they're big godders or little godders. And then I, will, then I know what their ministry will be. And there is a lot to say uh, related to that. John the Baptist was a, 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 a big, uh, big godder. And he definitely knew how to get people's attention uh, as was necessary. You remember the old joke about uh, the guy that uh, 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 owned a mule and he was selling it to another farmer who wanted to buy the mule and the guy said, well, is it the mule a hard worker? Oh, yes. Does the mule uh, obey commands? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the farmer that was buying the mule said, well, let me, let me watch how this works. So they they uh, hooked him up on the, a harness on him and a, a wagon kind of behind him and, and, they, and the, the owner of the mule uh, told him to get going and the mule refused to, to move. And, uh, and the, one, uh, the farmer that was wanting to buy it, he says, I thought you said this, was obe- this mule was obedient. And he said, yeah, give me a second. He grabbed a two-by-four out of uh, the thing and he whacked the mule across the head with it and then uh, got back in and then gave the command of the mule and uh, the mule f- uh, moved forward. And uh, uh, the owner said, well, this mule always obeys, but you have to get uh, his attention first. And uh, that's kind of what happened, uh, was happening here uh, in this, uh, this scene uh, uh, on, um, uh, uh, with the, uh, John and the religious leaders. So there, there, I told a joke. So 
um, you're all free to do so. Well, while we're talking about mules, there was a, a newlywed uh, uh, farmer and his wife, and they were visited by her mother, and uh, she immediately demanded that she be given a tour of the farm. And uh, so they were walking through the barn, and the, the farmer's mule suddenly reared up and kicked the mother-in-law and uh, tragically killed her instantly. And at the funeral service, the farmer stood near the casket, and he greeted people as they walked by. And, and the pastor noticed that whenever a woman would whisper something to the farmer, he would nod his head yes, and, and he'd say something. But whenever a man uh, walked by and, and whispered to the farmer, he would shake his head uh, no, and he'd mumble some reply. And the pastor was curious about all of this, and so he approached the farmer afterwards, asked him what it was all about, and the farmer said, well, the women would say, what a terrible tragedy, and I would nod my head and say, uh, yes, it was. And he said, the men would ask, you want to sell that mule? And uh, I would shake my head and say, uh, I can't, it's booked uh, for the next year. So a little, that's a little mother-in-law um, humor. I'll probably go home and it'll, the whole cancel culture, they'll be out there with pitchforks and everything will be burned down and uh, it's a joke. It's just a joke. Relax. What a crazy culture uh, we're in. And so uh, John uh, moves on and uh, he was asked by uh, people that uh, uh, were listening. They said, all right, We've been water baptized, and uh, as, a, as an example of our repentance, we're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, but what else can we do in, in preparation? And so the people, that's the first group that's introduced to us, said, what shall we do then? And he answered and he said to them, he who has two tunics, and a tunic was an undergarment under a robe, uh, for a man in that day, let him give uh, one of those tunics to him who has none. And not to have a tunic in that age would indicate uh, uh, extreme uh, poverty. And uh, so uh, give it to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. And so uh, the call to be gracious, to be merciful uh, to the poor, and, uh, you know, take out whatever you have of a surplus and give it to those uh, who uh, do not have that, that kind of a surplus. And then the tax collectors, they came to be baptized, and they said to him, same question, uh, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed uh, for you. So the tax collectors were uh, hated, uh, hated around the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire uh, needed taxes. There's nothing wrong with being a tax collector. It's part of government. Uh, Jesus said we're to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God uh, what is God's. And uh, so it's a part of government, nothing wrong with that. But what, what Rome did is they had all of these provinces within the Roman Empire and uh, they needed a certain amount of tax from all of these provinces. And so they would say, all right, we need this amount of money to come out of this province into the coffers of Rome uh, every year. And uh, do you want to be a tax collector in order to do that? Well, a tax collector, certainly in Israel, a tax collector uh, was hated not only uh, because they were tended to be corrupt, uh, Rome would say, you can collect these taxes for us, and then anything you tax above that uh, is yours to keep. Well, you could hardly introduce a system 
that invited greater corruption than that. And so uh, a Jewish tax collector, and they always use native citizens to do it. So a Jewish tax collector would be hated for his corruption and his greed, but also be hated because he had joined with an occupying force and taxing uh, his, his people. And, uh, and so uh, here Jesus tells them, listen, just collect what it is that Rome wants and do not abuse the position to enrich yourself and that will be a, uh, a demonstration of the fact that repentance has occurred uh, in your life and that you are awaiting uh, the coming of Messiah. And then likewise, uh, the third group that comes are the soldiers and they ask Jesus saying, what shall we do? And so he said to them, uh, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now these soldiers are either Roman soldiers, but probably not that likely. They are probably Jewish soldiers who were um, uh, 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 conscribed by the, the Roman Empire, made to be soldiers, probably to protect uh, the Jewish tax collectors. And so they come now, and, and the, the soldiers uh, in that ancient world, they were kind of a, a, a combination of uh, military and police force. In our culture, we have two different groups. We have a military and a police force. It's a luxury that we have that it wasn't always present in the ancient world. So this was a combination of a kind of a military person and also uh, law enforcement. And of course, there's a, anytime you have this kind of authority, you could shake people down, uh, you could abuse your authority, you could hide behind the badge and uh, take bribes from people and uh, all of these kind of things. And Jesus said, uh, don't do that. Uh, they weren't uh, super well paid, but he said, be uh, content with your wages, and an honest uh, soldier in that position in that day would have really spoken to uh, the, uh, the community that this is a person who has repented and is waiting for uh, the coming of the Messiah. It's interesting that Jesus did not call on the soldiers or the tax collectors to uh, quit their jobs. Uh, he just told them, stay in your position. Both of those positions are necessary part of government, and they're a necessary part of law and order. And because the world is a fallen place, if you're going to have laws, you are going to need a means to enforce those laws and maintain uh, order. And, uh, and, and so he, he, he doesn't tell them uh, to leave that occupation. He tells them, you obey God. Forget what Rome allows. Forget what everybody else allows. Forget what everybody's doing around you. And you do what God wants you to do and be in that position. And that will be uh, distinctive and powerful as a witness. And now as the people were in expectation uh, 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 for the Messiah. And to hear that John is such a powerful person and powerful message and the spiritual dynamic is, is going on, they all reasoned in their hearts about John and they begin to wonder whether he was uh, the Christ or, or not. So the speculation uh, began and uh, John uh, nipped it at the bud. He was very clear 
He answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. Isn't, that's great. But one mightier than I, speaking of Jesus, is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So if you're impressed with water baptism and you, you're impressed with me, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, talking about uh, those who are born again will be filled with the Holy Spirit, those who reject Him as Messiah and Savior, uh, judgment, fire, will be their uh, ultimate uh, portion. I do like uh, this as he's um, talking about, you know, his, his attitude here where the, the Messiah is coming, I am not uh, worthy to loose uh, even take his sandals off. And as we're looking at the Apostle Paul this morning and this sense of, of awe of God, this awe of Jesus Christ, this awe and this sense of privilege to be able to serve uh, God and to identify with him in, in any way. And I really, I pray for that, that awe in a greater measure in my, my own life. This is just right down into the marrow in their bones in terms of how uh, awesomely they, uh, they viewed Jesus, his ministry, and a chance to serve him in some uh, way. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so he's talking about the threshing of wheat, the breaking of the outer shell of the wheat, uh, the chaff, and then uh, the, the chaff being thrown up into the air, people having fans like this to blow the chaff away from the wheat, and uh, so the chaff representing uh, Jesus' disciples that they would be gathered into his barn, or the, the wheat would be gathered into his barn representing uh, his disciples, and then the chaff uh, would be burned. Uh, what is worthless, those that would ultimately reject Jesus. And with many other exhortations, uh, he preached to the people. This wasn't his only message. You remember when, uh, and I'm just about done, uh, you remember when uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, uh, teach us to pray uh, the way that uh, John teaches his disciples. Uh, or how come others came to Jesus and said, how come your disciples don't fast the way that John the Baptist uh, teaches his disciples to fast? So John was involved in discipleship with people in preparation for coming of Messiah on, on multiple levels. But Herod the Tetrarch being uh, rebuked by John uh, concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all of the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison and ultimately he ordered his death. And uh, so John the Baptist was not only faithful to God in the public environments, but he was faithful to God when he was brought before power, when he was dealing with people one-on-one, one-on-two. -on -one, one -on Herod had married his uh, brother's wife, uh, who was also related, and, and so it was this, uh, uh, this incestuous, uh, adulterous relationship that he had engaged in, and we don't know how uh, John got brought forth to speak to 
the rightness of what he had done, but John clearly condemned it in the light of the Scriptures, caused Herodias to hate him. Ultimately, he will be martyred uh, as a part of all of this, but it speaks to the fact that um, in our service to the Lord, uh, we will never see uh, power in our own lives, and you never see power in anyone's public life and ministry if they are not also uh, faithful to those same truths uh, one-on-one and in, in the privacy uh, of their lives. And so this beautiful picture of John the Baptist, and we'll pick it up next time uh, with his baptism uh, of Jesus and the formal start of Jesus' public ministry. Let's stand together now, and we'll have the worship team. Uh, I'll, close, uh, I'll pray, and then we'll have them close us in a song. If you're not a Christian here uh, tonight and uh, never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, we would love to pray with you to begin that relationship uh, with God uh, here tonight. And God is eager to begin it with you. Also, if you're outside, uh, there will be pastors and others uh, who would love to pray with you on e- uh, in front of the screen as the service ends. If you need prayer for anything related to your life, uh, we uh, would love to pray with you and pray for you. Father, thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for his life, his ministry. We thank you that we'll see him again one day. And we thank you for how all of these things uh, speak to our life and our ministries as well. We thank you for a shared time in your word this evening. We love fellowship. We love you. We love your word. We love to worship you. And we have loved uh, doing that tonight with you. And we thank you for it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.